So if you listened to episode three, you heard me chat with Esperanza about protests and accountability and the uncomfortable but necessary aspects of racial reconciliation and justice work. Today, we're still going to talk about justice work and racial reconciliation, but we're going to take a little bit of a different approach. We're going to chat about friendship as sacred resistance. Welcome to the Protagonistas. Like I made that all dramatic. <laughs> Just kidding. But really, today's conversation with the Jamaican ex-lawyer, priest in training, currently writing her first book, seminary student, boss lady, my friend Tisha Hadra. I'll be honest, I really needed to have this conversation with Tisha. Why? Well, left to my own devices, I'll live the majority of my days pissed off and bitter at much of Christianity. I know that sounds intense, but look, I'm an Enneagram 8. And it's funny, I was recently reading this how to get along with me tips from an Enneagram app I have, and one of the things it said that I kind of wish I could plaster on my forehead is, and I quote, my anger isn't as big of a deal to me as it is to you. And for real, I've never felt more seen. I may be angry most of the time, but to me, it's just really not that big of a deal. Anyways, I need to be reminded of things like friendship as resistance. Because as Tisha argues, friendship is where the real justice work takes place. And by real, I mean the deep and the personal and the impactful kind of justice work. And when we say friendship, we don't mean cheap friendship, or as Tisha calls it, friendship bracelets. (laughs) It's not just about grabbing one cup of coffee with someone and calling it reconciliation. It's about costly friendship, rooted in genuine trust and genuine love. And I think Tisha's right about this. This is the kind of friendship that's going to change the world. Really, like genuine friendship. And when I say this, it's not a jab at social media type of friendships. I'm actually not someone that's against social media at all. In fact, Twitter has been so helpful for me in finding like-minded community. When Facebook labeled me as a heretic for being pro-women leaders, right, when I moved across the country to uh, Los Angeles, I didn't know many people and I found helpful community on Twitter, many of whom I legit consider friends now. I've learned a lot from social media and I also have some really great followers, so thank you guys. But anyways, this kind of deep, trusting relationship takes time and requires hours of listening and learning and asking questions and being vulnerable. And So my goal for this episode and for you listening to this conversation is that we would all feel a healthy, encouraging kind of burden to build these kinds of friendships with not only people who look nothing like us, but people who are raised differently than us. And going beyond that, People that believe different things than us, whether it's people we deeply disagree with that consider themselves Christians as well, or people that believe differently than us that don't. Besides friendship, we chat about what it's like to be raised by a Jamaican immigrant family, what it's like going from being a lawyer to a black woman in the priesthood. And we chat a little bit about what it's like to be in an interracial marriage as we're both married to white men. Anyways. I was really moved by this conversation, and I hope you are too. Enjoy. Oh, and just letting you know, around the like four and a half, four minutes and 45 second mark, I had to cut the interview for a second because there was people cutting the grass outside and it was really loud, so I closed the window. Anyways, you might notice a a weird cut in the conversation. Uh, If so, that's what it is. I'm sitting here with Tisha. Um, <laughs> so we met. I think we like sort of met or like got close, I guess, through class. Right. 
So we were taking a women in, and church history and theology. Right. The title always slips my mind. But anyways, we were taking that. And we were in like this, uh, the same small group. Mm-hmm. And so we would kind of like have these really difficult readings on, I mean, just women being called witches and just Craziness. all this crazy stuff. And then we'd sit there and we'd all like debrief and like get emotional. And me and you were always like, ah! and then, <laughs> yeah, and then, you know, like the ones just like, yes. you know, going hard. And I think it's because we both come from similar backgrounds mm-hmm. in that this was never even an option. Like being a woman in mm-hmm. leadership, being a pastor, and also being a woman of color in mm-hmm. that space. So we're, you know, just really passionate about that, I think. So, yeah, we kind of bonded over that. So... I think this the way it actually happened was that we were in this class and I would listen to Kat's thoughts and comments and reflections and I would just think to myself, I really want to be friends with her. <laughs> and um, and then flattered. we became friends. <laughs> That's That sounds a little bit more accurate. <laughs> but yeah. Because we, I think both of us, like we don't pull any punches. So we're attracted to people like that. I think that's right. <laughs> Anyways, okay, so I want to hear about your background. I want to mm-hmm. hear, um, because I, I was so attracted to your story, like once mm-hmm. we got to chat, you come from, you were a lawyer, and then now you are going to be ordained yes. in the Anglican Church. Yes. That is a huge leap. Huge. So talk to me about that. Yeah. So just in terms of how I grew up, I mean, I was born in Fort Lauderdale, Florida, South Florida, which is North of Miami, so yeah, close by. We have that in common. Yeah, and um, my parents are immigrants from Jamaica, so my whole family is Jamaican, and so I'm a first generation citizen. And so part of my story of growing up in South Florida is just always being around diverse people. Um, That's just kind of how I how my world has always looked. And so I don't know any different in some senses. Um, so, yeah, I mean, so that's kind of the brief piece about just the context yeah. of what I was used to growing up and kind of two little, I guess, facts about mm. what may have, what does shape me even today. And I would say that growing up in South Florida, you become spoiled because of that diversity. Yes. Right? And so you don't, I mean, at least for me, I didn't recognize that I was a minority until I left, right? Because mm-hmm. you're so used to everyone, mm-hmm. you know, so many different kinds of people. And um, so, yeah, so that does play a huge role. Yeah. That. You know, it's interesting because it, it was, I even, I, I remember distinctly even high school, right? Mm-hmm. So I went to a diverse high school. I was in a magnet program. So that's all kinds of things, right? I was bused from a predominantly black neighborhood into this school, high school that was by the beach. But um, it was a really diverse high school. And so I was on the debate team at my high school. I know, make whatever assumptions you want about me based on that. I'm fine with it. And so I was on the debate team. And my high school debate team was always really diverse. It was always the most racially diverse team when we would go to competitions. And so that was one of the er – one of the earliest times when I saw that this kind of diversity, what didn't exist in all spaces, right? So we would travel and pretty much everybody else was white in their, you know, khaki pants and Mm -hmm. blue blazers with the white shirt and the Mm -hmm. gold buttons. This was the uniform. And that was when I started to have those experiences, those comments of, oh, 
you are so articulate. Whoa. Right? Whoa. You know, these like offhanded people, mm-hmm. they mean well, I think. They yeah, think yeah. they're paying you a compliment. But you just start to have this sense wow. of, man, there's something that people seem to expect less of me mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. of my skin color, because of the way that I look. And so, yeah, I think that even as I was in this really diverse context, it was never lost on me that the fact that I was black was going to mean a very particular thing, was going to Mm. impact me in particular ways as I just lived out my life. Yeah. So yeah, that diversity, I'm sure played a huge role and also starting to recognize it. Like you said, that's, I'm sure like, you didn't expect in that diversity to like anyone to think anything different. And then all of a sudden, like you start hearing these comments, like microaggressions. Yeah, that, exactly. Yeah. And those, those add up that that mm-hmm. is part of the story Absolutely. of like what we're trying to undo. In Absolutely. This, in this, yeah. Um, you receive those implicit and sometimes more explicit, but those implicit yeah. messages just yeah. are fed to you in so many different ways yeah. and through so many different mediums. Yeah, that's huge. Mm-hmm. So yeah, so talk to me about your path to seminary. Yeah. Oh gosh. So you mentioned earlier that I used to be a lawyer, which at this point feels almost like a separate life, life right? Yes. That, <laughs> that is a thing that is so far from mm-hmm. from my life now. I can't even explain it to you. So yeah, I mean, I, I practice law for. Almost seven years. Wow. I did insurance defense work, um, so a, sort of a small area of litigation. And um, it wasn't that I despised it. Like the, the key thing that I, that I think back to about that time in my life was that towards the end of my legal career, I worked at a fantastic firm. Mm-hmm. I had great friends mm-hmm. at the firm. I had an advocate within the firm, mm-hmm. so who was really, uh, and he was, uh, it's an older white male too, which is mm-hmm. perhaps a story for a little bit later, but he was a, my champion in the firm. Oh. You know, part of making partner at my firm was you had to have the clients. It wasn't mm-hmm. just mm-hmm. merit or number of years or whatever. Yeah. You had to have the business. And he was do, was really uh, sharing his client resources oh, with wow. me and pass. Yeah, exactly. So it was fantastic to have that. So I say all that to say that my life as an attorney, if I was going to be happy doing that work, it would have been there and in that time, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. I'm in a great environment, a positive environment. You know, I'm well compensated. All of those different things that the world says are the measure of success. I had that, you know? And even though all those things were in place, there was just a an unsettled feeling, a, a discontent, you know? Um, and then eventually I just couldn't ignore it anymore. And I had to attend to that. So kind of the first piece of the journey was, listening to God's leading and saying that this is not what I have for you forever or even in the long term. So that was, and that's a, that's the journey, right? Like just, okay, I think that God's calling me away from the law, but I didn't at all have a sense. And I don't mean to imply that that was short or easy. I was crying on the floor many a time about that, about just that whole decision. But I um, 
once I decided or once I had that sense of being called away from the law, I had no idea what God might be calling me to. Mm -hmm. I mean, just no clue. I went to law school to become an FBI agent. That was kind of the whole point. I know your face is like, what? Yes. (laughs) I don't know, Kat. I'm a mess. So that's why I went to law school. So I thought, all right, well, you know, I'll pursue that. I'll try to look into jobs as in-house counsel for insurance companies and different things like that. And nothing was panning out, you know, nothing was panning out. But I mean, I was walking along that path with the FBI and then there was a big government shutdown and they mm-hmm. hiring freeze and all of that. Yeah. So then as I was kind of trying to do this reaching in the dark mm-hmm. is really what it was. I, um, during a time of just old fashioned prayer and fasting, mm-hmm. right? Like just prayer <laughs> just and fasting fashion. and weeping. Mm-hmm. I was, uh, it became clear to me that I was to serve in this particular ministry at the church that I had been attending for a number of years. I mean, I think I had been there for five or so years at the time. And so I thought, okay, that's great. I'm going to go and I'll serve in this ministry at my church Mm -hmm. and it'll be great. Mm -hmm. And then in the meantime, God can hurry up and tell me what I'm supposed to do for work. Yeah. So famous last words. So I, (laughs) so as I'm interviewing for just a volunteer role in that ministry, I just was talking about where I was in my career um, and kind of, you know, brought up that I was looking to make some changes. So I start serving in that ministry and it's a a short term, small group environment for people who are questioning about Mm -hmm. their faith and and, um, curious about Christianity. So I, um, started uh, volunteering, right? Started volunteering. And you were still working at the time. I'm I'm still working, still still practicing law, and I started volunteering. And months, uh, several months later, I got an email from a woman, the woman I had interviewed with who was on staff at the church, and she said, hey, I'm going to be leaving staff. And I thought, I remember what you said about being in career transition, and um you know, if you're, I wanted to know if you're interested in my role, here's the job description. I thought, no, I, I don't want to go work at a church. I'm a lawyer. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Right. I don't know that that was never, that was never on my radar at all. And so, I mean, I remember telling my mother and she was like, but will you have health insurance? (laughs) You know? Yeah. So, um, so yeah, but it was so strange. I, that email, I just left it in my inbox for so long. I just couldn't say no. Delete it. Yeah, I couldn't yeah. delete yeah. it. You know, that, that yeah. sense of, it's just not no. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I just said, okay, well, just go and have the conversation mm-hmm. and see what's what. Yeah. So I went and met with um, a couple of people, the gentleman who would, who was today my very good friend and who would later become my boss and John Hambrick and we just had an incredible conversation and I walked out with just the greatest sense of clarity wow. that that was the thing that God was calling me to. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I had months of interviews mm-hmm. after that and had to talk to a bunch of different people mm-hmm. after that, but I did get offered that job and I accepted that job and then I was working in full-time ministry and I wow. did have health insurance, praise God. <laughs> So what was that transition mentally, emotionally? What was that transition like? Yeah, you know, 
people ask me that a lot and they ask me if I, if I miss it, did I ever miss the practice? And you know, I, I just never did. I, I'm not going to pretend like every time someone makes a big career transition that it's easy or, you know, whatever, if you're following after God, it's going to be so easy. No, I think that's sort of silly. Right. Mm -hmm. But I will say that when you have that for me, I had such clarity for Mm -hmm. me, it was just so clear and I just really had no doubts Mm -hmm. about this transition. I mean, I took a huge pay cut. There were a lot of different changes I had to make in my life, but I never looked back. I never regretted it. And it was obviously looking at where I am today, the right and best decision in that, in at that time. And in that moment, so totally part of the journey. Yeah, exactly. Which I could never have known. I mean, Mm -hmm. people would say, so what do you want to do next? I would think, (laughs) I don't know. Can I have a minute? I just made a, <laughs> I just made this huge life transition and I really was just going to go all in and do this job and do this job well. And that was all I was really thinking about. Yeah. And so the church that you were part of, mm-hmm. were, was there any opportunity as a woman or as a black woman mm-hmm. to be a pastor or to kind of grow in, in that? Yeah, so the church where I was on staff was racially diverse, but definitely predominantly white. Okay. Um, And then the staff was even less diverse than the congregation. That's usually how it is. Right? (laughs) Yeah. And the leadership, well, you can Mm. make guesses about that. And in terms of gender, you know, it's interesting because initially it just wasn't something I thought about, you know, I think I was really just focused on doing this job, doing this, Mm -hmm. this thing, engaging in this ministry, this work that that I thought that God had called me to. And I really wasn't thinking about being a pastor Mm -hmm. or any of that. It just wasn't really on my mind until that changed. (laughs) Yep. (laughs) Until it was, yeah, you know, and then it was just a, a kind of a growing sense of similar to the before, right? Like an unsettled sense, yeah. a, just a, a sense of, I think that there's just something different that God is calling me to something different than this in a long-term way. And so that was when I first started to wake up to looking around and thinking, huh, well, what, what is the, what are the roles of women and women in leadership in this church. And, um, yeah, I think that there was, I observed a lot and there just weren't a lot of examples is yeah. I guess what I would say. Yeah. There weren't a lot of examples. There weren't a lot of places where you could look and really see exactly women communicating regularly on Sunday morning mm-hmm. or, you know, just all the different ways of really being key decision makers. I won't say there were zero, mm-hmm. right? But there weren't a lot of examples. And there were certainly no examples of women that looked like me. Yeah. There was there were none. Mm-hmm. So that that's that's mm-hmm. a challenge. Yeah. That's a challenge because you don't you can't really have an imagination, I think, for what it is that God might be calling you to if you mm-hmm. just you have, if you have no categories, exactly. if you have no categories yeah. for it, you can't be what you can't see. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Oh, I, I agree yeah. 100% with that. So 
it really wasn't until, which I know you had mentioned Anglicanism before, that's kind of where this pops up in my story. It was, I was listening to a podcast and I heard the story of a female Anglican priest, uh, Tish Harrison Warren. And yeah, have you read? I haven't Liter- read. Liturgy I've, of the Ordinary, yeah. yes. But I've heard a lot, yeah. Yeah. Um, and I heard, and first of all, I thought, woman priest. Yeah. What Sounds like that? an oxymoron. <laughs> Sounds like an oxymoron. What is that? So I just started researching and reading a little bit more, and I, I saw that women were leading entire churches. Mm. And Kat, my, my mind was blown. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Yeah. My my mind was really blown. I that that had never I, I had never thought of that possibility for myself. Yeah. And so that was also the time. So at the same time that I was beginning to have some emerging sense of a call to pass to be a pastor, that was also the time when Anglicanism mm-hmm. sort of reared its head in my story. So, yeah. Yeah, I do think it's important, like what you were saying, that it was never modeled for you. Mm-hmm. And so, therefore, you never thought about it. I recently had a conversation with a friend that, you know, he said, well, I, and, you know, he meant well. <laughs> but he was like, well, I don't think, quote, complementarian theology is mm-hmm. oppressive uh, or or restrictive for all women, you know, just for the ones that want to lead. And I'm like, okay, but a lot of these women don't ever think exactly. from when you're a little girl, you're in, you know, when you're in Sunday school, exactly. no one's ever like, hey, you'll be a future pastor one day. Mm-hmm. So that's never developed mm-hmm. in you. And so I think that's huge that we, I think we need to be pushing that narrative of like, you can, you can, you can, mm-hmm. you know, for everyone very young. If not, it's never even going to move forward. Exactly. I saw this just beautiful story on Twitter the other day where this woman said that um, she was, it was a, she's a seminary professor and there's a woman that was in her preaching class and her, this woman's granddaughters heard that she was going to be preaching, you know, the coming days. And this little girl, she said, just clapped her hands together and she said, women can preach. And she looked at her sister and her, you know, let's say her, her sister's name is, Lisa, she said, Lisa, we are going to preach. Oh, yes, exactly. That's really it, right? Yeah. yeah. It had never occurred to those girls Mm -hmm. that they could be preachers. Totally. Until they saw it. And not saw it in just anyone, but in their own grandmother. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Oh, I could have just, I loved that story. It really is the picture of what what we're talking about. You really need those examples. Women need those examples. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And I think taking that even a step further, like that intersectionality. Because sure, there's one thing to see a white woman preaching, but then it's a yes. whole other thing for you as a black woman to see a black woman preaching. Yes. You know, that's a totally Well, and then, and then, it, then there's a whole nother layer of that in ang- within Anglicanism, right? So talk to me about that. Yeah. So it's interesting. It, it is something I think I'm still wrestling with mm-hmm. and I'm still sorting out for myself. Um, I mean, I came to Anglicanism, so it kind of came up for me at a time when I was discerning my own calling, and then it continues to kind of pop, it continued to pop up for me. And then when I came to seminary and I started learning about 
more liturgical practices, a sacramental theology. Those things just came alive for me. Mm -hmm. Christ came alive for me in a different way um, when I learned about what the Eucharist means Mm -hmm. to Anglicans and to, you know, other, they don't have the corner on sacramental theology. I'm not saying that, but, but so that was, um, that was really motivating or animating, I guess would be the better word for me. But as that was happening, I also have a really kind of clear sense of call to ministry in uh, diverse settings, mm-hmm. right? So that's part of, um, because I mean, I mentioned before that growing up, I always have been in these sort of diverse spaces and I can move through in all black spaces and predominantly white spaces. I mean, this is, and you know, as a lawyer, as mm-hmm. a, this is, you don't, you don't do those things without learning how to navigate yeah. different worlds. And so I think that that part of my story is a thing that God is going to leverage in me in my future ministry. So how, then how do I reconcile this sense of call to the Anglican faith, to an Anglican church, to the Anglican church with this other call to minister to racially diverse groups or congregations, you know? Cuz I mean Globally, the Anglican Church it it's diverse, right? I I don't know the figures, but I would I would not be surprised if it was actually predominantly black when you look at the Anglican Church on the continent of Africa. In North America, it definitely is predominantly white. So, what do I do with that? You know, and I think I'm still I'm still sorting it out. I I look at people like um, Esau Macaulay and. Um, other folks that I've been able to, who's a, who's an Anglican priest and a, and a New Testament, a black man, mm-hmm. Anglican priest, a New Testament professor, who, who, who is really, he's at the forefront of raising issues of race and racial justice within the Anglican church, particularly in the diocese in which I would be ordained as I go through that, go through that process. And so I'm just thankful that, that God continues to show me yeah. those people that are also, Anglican that are also finding Christ in fresh and new ways in the Anglican church, but that, that are still really committed to issues of racial justice. So yeah, I'm still sorting it out, but it, but it is a, it is, I think an emerging and uh, evolving is the word I'm looking for. It's an, I, I have an evolving sense of, of what that all, what that all means and what, what that will look like. Yeah. So you said navigating different worlds, yeah, um, and I think that that, that is that's huge mm-hmm. um, for people of color and just yeah for women. And so tell me a little bit about um, your experience navigating yeah. different worlds growing up because you grew up in a very diverse setting, and yeah, navigating different worlds even throughout your process of getting to where you are right now. Yeah. You know, it's the the layers of being both black and woman. You know, those, those two identities or markers are, I walk around with both of those always and in equal measure, right? What, wherever I am. And one of the things that has been, I think, most interesting about that intersectionality, that, that the interplay between those identities is that I live under the weight of the stereotype of the angry black woman, like all the time, you know, it's, 
it's a thing that we, I, I'm sure that, yeah, it's a thing that we as black women, I think just always are having to navigate because what could be perceived of as passionate mm-hmm. or uh, convicted, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. For another person, mm-hmm. whether really if it's a, whether a man or a white woman yeah, will be perceived as anger. And, and and inappropriate inappropriate anger mm-hmm. in me. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of it's almost this sense of having to modulate or manage how you mm-hmm. are. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. How you are. I don't yeah. even know what el- what other words yeah. to put around it, you know? But at the same time, I I think that God has given me a certain gift as kind of a bridge builder, you know, a person who can see differences between people or between groups and really help those groups to see their commonalities Mm. and how they might be able to then work together. And that's sure on issues of race and culture, but even just, I think it surfaced for me in thinking about things as simple as in projects, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. just sort of more benign projects. Yeah. One of my everyday stuff. Exactly. Yeah. Everyday stuff that then you can see how God can leverage those mm-hmm. smaller, more benign giftings yeah. for kingdom purposes. Totally. Yeah. And so I think that that's what, that's what I've, what I've kind of observed. So for example, I think about, you know, college I went to University of Florida, mm-hmm. so predominantly white institution in Florida. And I what now that was interesting because the world like black and there's it's segregated, it's just separate, right? You just existed in different worlds. So I came from this high school experience where we were all kind of, you know, together and it was diverse and in college and it was very separate. So I both, you know, pledged a historically black sorority, okay. but I was also in the predominantly white group that was like the ambassadors to the school. So I just, that's just, that just, it seems like that's always been mm-hmm. a part of my story yeah. that I move through these different worlds. And I just, I believe that, that God intends to use that. Mm, totally. I believe that God intends to use that so that I can draw these two worlds Mm -hmm. together which sounds so big and maybe sort of pollyanna-ish and pie in the sky but no no, when you read revelation that's where creation is headed (laughs) so let's start now (laughs) so um yeah no i think that's beautiful i think that's important and it's funny because i i kind of have that similar sense i there's there's times where i get very frustrated that i spent two years like at a seminary Mm -hmm. where it's it was all I mean I only read white men I only you Mm -hmm. know I was only taught by white men and I only learned the white men theology and then I honestly like now in my life I get so frustrated and so angry and like oh I wasted so much time Mm -hmm. and like you know, but then there'll be people that there will be people that remind me that like, well, no, like you know that yes. world, yes, and now you you know this one, and you can merge the two. That's whereas right. a lot of people can't, and so I think that's a gift. Like mm-hmm. you're talking about, mm-hmm. you know, gift um, these gifts, and I think that that 
is huge and it's super important because um, we need that, right? We need those bridge builders. Absolutely. Like, we need the people on the left that are all, you know, passionate here. And, we, you know, but then we also need the people in the middle that are going to, That's right. you know, help people join hands. Um, so uh, going back to the, I guess, the idea of navigating both worlds. Um, talk to me about interracial relationships, yeah. interracial marriage. So you're married to a white man. I am. And as am I. Last I checked, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so as am I. And so mm-hmm. I've had some really interesting and funny stories. And, you know, some of it just, yeah. Oh, yeah. visiting, you know, small <laughs> oh, town, small white town as a Latino. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. To, you know. So talk to me about interracial uh, marriages and then, you know, just relationships in general. Yeah. I mean, you know, there there are some people who only date outside of their race. They they would say that that's their preference. And that's not me. That's never been, that's not like, that's not my thing. That's never been my thing. So, which I don't know why. I guess I just feel like I can't, I can't relate to that. I only share that to say that I didn't set out to go marry a white man, right? That wasn't on my list of things to do. Because <laughs> let me tell you, life would be a lot easier, actually, if yeah. you didn't have, you know, sameness sometimes is more comfortable, oh, yeah. right? Totally. But here I am. I mean, my this is who I, this is who I fell in love with. Yeah. This is who I fell in love with. And so, um, and I, and I, and I have no regrets or qualms yeah. about that, obviously. But what I what I will say is that I I love my husband more than I have ever loved anyone before in my entire life, and I we didn't meet until I was in my mid thirties, so I have many points of comparison. <laughs> so um, you know, but that that big love, man, it didn't it didn't protect us, it didn't shield us from the difficulties and the challenges of being in an interracial and in a cross cultural marriage, you know? Um, I think we were really naive, honestly. I think we were, we were naive. We, we knew that we loved each other. We knew that we loved the Lord. We knew that we just enjoyed spending time with, you know, all the things Mm -hmm. that, that go into, I think, a good, solid (laughs) companionship and all that, all those things were there. But I just don't think that we really spent enough time sorting out Mm -hmm. what it was going to mean that we were going to be, that we are of different races, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I don't, I think we were, I think we were sort of naive about that. Yeah. So what are some of guess maybe challenges or just mm-hmm. some things that you've learned in that, um, in that perhaps maybe code switching or perhaps, you know, just navigating everyday yeah. experiences. Or just having to explain things yeah. like I have to, I sleep in a bonnet at night, right? Mm-hmm. Like what, you know, all mm-hmm. com- there, I mean, I have, oh, I'll never forget. I had to, I was getting my hair braided and I was just, it was crazy busy that day. And I, needed my husband to go to the hair supply store to get the hair. And when I say hair supply store to get the hair, I'm not talking about Ulta or Sally's, right? <laughs> there's a there's a whole nother world yeah. of hair supply stores that black women know about, mm-hmm. right? And that's where you buy the hair for your braids. Yeah. And I sent my white husband to the store to get the hair for my braids. And you know what? He came back with the right no, thing. Yes, he did. 
Yes, he did. And <laughs> he awesome. felt so proud of himself. That awesome. <laughs> but that, but that's an example mm-hmm. of a thing that a couple that, I, I mean, obviously a black man would need, any man is going to yeah. need some help with figuring out like yeah. what hair to get, right? Mm-hmm. I'm not saying that. But the number of layers that had to be explained and bridged in that yeah, are so good. Ex- exactly. <laughs> no, really, that's good. So that that to me is like this microcosm of what it has looked like for us to kind of navigate yeah. navigate these differences, yeah. you know. And then family, you know, my my husband is um, one of two kids. I'm also one of two kids, but I have a huge extended family. You know, you, you go, you come to my, be with my family for Thanksgiving or Christmas and it is huge. It's yeah. like almost 30 people and it goes late and there's dancing and yeah. not, it's a big party, you know, and we have, so he's like, whoa, this is so different. So just all those cultural differences that just, they continue to you know, pop up and, and we just have to continue to navigate them. We just have to continue to navigate them. But, you know, on the, on the issue of race, I think for my husband, it's a matter of a new awareness, Mm -hmm. you know, being, and this really extends, I think, beyond marriage, just in relationship. When you love someone, Mm -hmm. when you care about someone and you love them deeply I think you have a new awareness of it. You're better able to see things through their eyes. Mm-hmm. And you, and so you have a new awareness of what might be painful for them. Yeah. What might be um, troublesome to them. Mm-hmm. And then those things become painful and troublesome for you, mm-hmm. you know, and that's not a, that's not, that goes beyond marriage. Yeah. You know, oh, yeah. I think that's a relational that's a relational thing. So the love, empathy really springs out of that love. And so because my husband loves me and because I love him, which it goes both ways, because I have, I can't only expect him to see things from my perspective. I have to mm-hmm. see things yeah. from his perspective too. But that we're able to then take on the perspective of the other. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Um, that is its own journey of awakening and did you hear did you see the way that that person spoke to me or treated me or did you hear that thing and you know Mm -hmm. and so um yeah and so I think that that kind of love that kind of relationship is what I think that that's part of what is missing Mm -hmm. in a lot of the church's conversations about race and racial justice Yeah. yeah oh that's so good yeah, taking on the perspective of another person. Because mm-hmm. um, that's the first step to taking on the burden of another person. As we're instructed and, you know, as we should be doing. Um, mm-hmm. But you can't do that unless you take on someone else's perspective. That's and right. That's huge. I love when, you know, when Paul is, Paul says, weep with those who weep mm-hmm. and rejoice with those who rejoice, you mm-hmm. know. And that, for me, is just this really concrete picture of empathy. Yeah. You know, that 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 is... That is two sentences Mm -hmm. that tell you everything you need to know Mm -hmm. about what it is to empathize with another person. And I don't think you can arrive at that kind of empathy without love in the context of community and mutual obligation Mm -hmm. and really seeing each other as family. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I know we've spoken... um, 
before. And so mm-hmm. I'd love for you to talk about it now because I feel like this is a perfect segue yeah. into your book. Yeah. And so you're in the process of writing a book. Yay. Oh my goodness. <laughs> it's so crazy. You know, it's funny because, you know, we started this conversation talking about me as a lawyer and then, you know, lawyer into ministry mm-hmm. and then seminarian and pastor and priest and all these mm-hmm. things and now writer and every piece of this I have come to reluctantly. Yeah. <laughs> Do you yeah. know? I mean, yeah. none of it has ever been on my list of mm-hmm. my list of things to do. None of it really was in my plan. I would, this all is, yeah. yeah. I mean, you know, we've, we've, <laughs> yeah. we've talked about this, right? And so, um, yeah, so I'm writing a book. And so I mentioned earlier John Hambrick, mm-hmm. who was uh, my boss at the church where I was on staff in Atlanta. And he is an older white male. Mm -hmm. And so he's a little different from me as a black woman. I think I still count as young. I'm not sure. I guess it depends on who you ask. Thank you. (laughs) Um, And what, what we noticed is that we, as we interacted with each other every day, that we really built this foundation of trust Mm -hmm and the ability to empathize with one another. And so that meant that when the, when our conversations did turn to difficult topics like race, I mean, which was bound to happen if I'm really bringing my whole story and my whole self to bear on our relationship. Yeah. So when our conversations turned to race, what we noticed was that we had this strong foundation that could withstand Mm -hmm the challenges of what can be really contentious and awkward Mm. conversations, you know? Um, And so we, what we then noticed was that as we started to have those conversations and build this relationship between the two of us, where even though we were so, so different Mm. on multiple levels, that, that God started to call us into and move us into opportunities to do more concrete work on racial justice together. That's amazing. And so our relationship became a foundation for a broader work. Mm -hmm. And so a couple, I guess it's almost, it's over a year ago now. um, John contacted me. I, I had moved by this point to start seminary. I had left that job at the church and I was, had started seminary and we have, we obviously kept in touch. Mm -hmm. I, we talk all the, I just talked to him this morning. Mm -hmm. We talk all the time. And so he said, I, he had already written a book, one book and had it published. And he said, I'm thinking about the second book. And I really think that this book, um, I really think I, I want to write a book about race. You know, I, I really think that that's the message that God has given me mm-hmm. in this season. And he said, I want you to write it with me. I want you to be my co-author. Yeah. I mean, wow. that's what an ally, I mean, that's the picture of an ally. It really is yeah. because he could have written the book on his own, right. Mm-hmm. From his own perspective. But instead he said, I want you to write this book with me. And so I then all of a sudden I was represented by an agent. Yeah. I had already an in with a publisher, the one that publishes first, but you know, yeah. all of these opportunities mm-hmm. that I just wouldn't have had mm-hmm. otherwise that he intentionally wanted to share with me and not as a token, because what came with it was 
my voice in yeah. the book. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Like me saying, no, we can't write that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we can't write that, you know? Mm-hmm. And what about this? We have got to have a chapter on systemic racism. And we, you know what I mean? And just yeah, really yeah. going through that process of of writing a book that, that really represented both of our perspectives mm-hmm. and both of our voices. And so, um, yeah, so, so I'm writing a book. <laughs> <laughs> and it's called Black and White. Awesome. Disrupting racism one friendship at a time. Oh wow, it's beautiful. Thank you. Yeah. And um it comes out in April and I am shocked yeah. every time I say it out loud because it's <laughs> ridiculous and it's amazing and I but I but I'm I think I'm getting to the point where I'm it, it's like I it's so nerve-wracking. It almost it, you, I would almost rather just walk around outside naked. Right? Really? Yeah, because because you you write this thing, yeah. you have labored over it yeah. for so long, and then you're gonna put, put it out, out there, there <laughs> yeah. and invite people's yeah. feedback. Oh yeah. But but I think but I just I really am I really am convinced. I think at this point I'm just trying to be a good steward. We're just yeah. trying to be good stewards of the message that God has given us yeah. in this book. And so, yeah, as you can imagine, the the premise of the book is kind of what I've talked about before, of this idea of friendship as foundational for the broader work, right? I never wanted to write a book that was just, black people, white people need to go have coffee together and sing Kumbaya, right? I never want, that's not what I think. But man, I think we need more activism that's rooted in true relationship and community that is then rooted in Christ mm-hmm. right that that's why we wrote this book that's good because we really believe that that's what's missing and we hope that this book can move people toward that mm-hmm. toward relationship with one another so that we can engage with God like God is already at work yeah God is moving Mm -hmm. and we can partner with God or we can decide to sit on the sidelines. Mm -hmm. That's really our choice. Mm -hmm. And I think as the church, the latter is not an acceptable option. It's not an acceptable option. So that's so good. And yeah, like you said, um, God is at work and our joining him requires getting our hands dirty. Yes. Requires getting it wrong, getting it right. It that's requires, right. You know, it, and it's, but it's part of it. It's part that's of right. just like joining in that. Um, I'm taking a class now of, of Romans exegesis with Tommy Gibbons. And that's oh, something gosh. that he, yeah, it's really good. Something really good. Something that he talks about is, um, you know, Jesus was the perfect example of he showed up and he didn't stand on the sidelines mm-hmm. and just kind of like, oh, okay, this, you know, telling people what to do or whatever, you know, but no, like he walked that difficult path, yes. you know. He died Adam's death, like mm-hmm. he, the full throttle, you know, mm-hmm. in it. And I think that, um, yeah, part of that friendship and the, the friendship and the activism and all of that goes together and it's yes. messy and it, you know, sometimes it's hard, you know, and, but that's huge. That's beautiful. I'm glad that you're focusing on that. Yeah, because it's true. Um, I think friendship will, and, and that's, it's such a simple concept, but it's not, right? Exactly. <laughs> that's right. Like it's friendship, but well, what is friendship? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I think that we, we have this idea of friends 
like in a um, maybe an elementary school type of way or something where we just need we just need people to be more friendly. Yeah, you know, we just we just need to be kind. We just need people to be more like friends and have friendship bracelets and have the secret handshake. You know, but that's not what we're talking about. (laughs) That's not that is not going to change a thing, right? Being kind or you know. Shoving things under the rug. Exactly. Or, yeah. None of that. None of that. You know, I think about, I have a, I have a sister, a younger sister. And, um, if someone was treating her unfairly, if someone was hurting her in some way or being rude to her or what, whatever it was, you know, it would be very clear in my mind that I have an obligation. I have yeah. an obligation To step into that gap Mm -hmm. in between her and this wrongdoer and to prevent further wrongdoing from happening. And I don't think that anyone would disagree with that, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And why? What what is the basis of that obligation? It's that she's my sister. Mm -hmm. And I love her. She's my family. It's no accident that scripture refers to the people of God as brothers and sisters in Christ, right? Mm. It's because we are to be constantly reminded that the bonds of Christ are familial bonds, mm. right? right? These are bonds of you are my sister in Christ, and that means something. Yeah. It means more than friendship bracelets. Yeah, It means I have an obligation to you. Mm. It means right. that because I love you, I cannot leave you over there on your own to just languish in whatever, right? It means that I have some obligation that that springs out of my love for you. Um, That's beautiful. To to I don't want to use the word defend. That that doesn't capture it exactly, and yet it's the best one that I can kind of come up with right in now, the yeah. moment. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But um but to be there in solidarity. Let's say that yeah. Solidarity. In solidarity. Yeah. Um in in those in those spaces of of injustice. Mm-hmm. You know? Cuz that's what we're talking about. When we yeah. say friendship, we're talking about like family. Yeah. You know, not friendship bracelets. <laughs> <laughs> I love the, the comparison. Friendship yeah. bracelets. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah, because because friendship bracelet that that's just that's a cheap that's a cheap reconciliation. You, you hear the phrase cheap grace. Yeah, that's a cheap reconciliation. Mm-hmm. That's not real reconciliation. That's not the kind of reconciliation that's going to change people's lives, people's positions, people's access. You know, none of that stuff. It's just it's just window dressing. Yeah, and that's not what we're after. Yeah, that's not what we're after. Yeah, what we're after is costly. Yeah, amen. Yeah. Amen. And, uh, it requires a lot of effort and a lot of time and a lot of, mm-hmm. yeah. And mm-hmm. I think um, there is something beautiful about, I something that I have been saying lately, I think I got it from Oprah. Oh, good. <laughs> couple, I love it. A couple years ago, but it's like, speak your truth. Yeah. And I don't mean that in like, a, you know, spiritual, whatever. I just mean like, what is your truth that you mm-hmm. need to speak right mm-hmm. now? You know, mm-hmm. what is it? That you need to say that is honest, that is yes. genuine, mm-hmm. that is real, mm-hmm. and that is you, you know, that needs to be communicated. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times it's uncomfortable and it's hard, mm-hmm. and um, but it needs to be said when it needs to be said. And I think that's what, what the basis of friendship, right? Like 
truth, honesty. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not just kindness and it's not just being sweet, but it's being real. <laughs> yes, know? I agree. We, we devote um, an entire chapter to anger and there's a lot of attention paid to righteous anger, right? Because mm-hmm. anger has a place yeah. in relationships yeah. that are real, like you said. Um, and so, yeah, we talk about that. What does it mean to be righteously anger, angry yeah. and, and to, 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 to be okay to experience that righteous anger, but also for the other person to then make space totally. to receive and hear that righteous anger and not just try to stop, stamp it out Yeah, because it's part of, it has to be part of the it's part of the evolution of the relationship, right? Like the good stuff happens in the hard places. Mm-hmm. That's the part. Mm-hmm. That's the part that we don't like yeah. as much. <laughs> that's okay. But it is still the good stuff. Yeah. But yeah, it is going to be. There are bound to be some challenges along the way. Yeah, that's amazing. Well, I'm really excited for this book. I'm excited to read it. Thank you. Yes. So when Thank it you. comes out, we'll be putting stuff online to make Yay. sure. Yeah. But um, anything else that you want to share just about the idea? No, I mean, this this has been amazing. I think that the work that you're doing, Kat, I think it's so important to say is so needed because, you know, we as women just, we can never have too many examples. Mm -hmm. We can never have too many stories of women doing things that they never thought was possible. Exactly. That they never imagined so that other women can then look and say, wow. Yeah. I wonder what God might be calling me to do. Yeah. And so I just want to say, I just want to say thank you for even having me. It has been such a joy. I mean, we're, you know, people listening, we're we're friends yeah. anyway. So this was just sort of, <laughs> you chatting. know, oh, it's Wednesday. So, um, so this yeah. has been really fun and I appreciate it. Yeah. I love what you're doing. No, thank as you. Always. Thank you so much. And I, I do love what you're doing. I feel like I can get so caught up in the activism or in being, you know, trying not to be cynical and bitter, yes. you know, but it's a good reminder that, yeah, friendship is the basis um, of a lot of positive change. You know, when it comes to race and when it comes to gender, you know. Yes, absolutely. Um, making those friendships among those lines and hearing other people's stories and like, this is my experience. This mm-hmm. is what I've been through, and mm-hmm. and I think stories is is just a beautiful bridge builder. And so, I agree. Yeah, building bridges is the way to go. <laughs> I like to think so. I like All to right. think so. Thank you so much. Thanks, Kat. <laughs>